the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. So this one time in high school, two friends of mine and I took an overnight camping trip up in the Adirondack Mountains, they in their canoe, and me in my kayak. If you've ever talked to me for more than five minutes, you probably know by now that I love to kayak, and it was great. We spent all day paddling 20 miles upriver. We found this little campsite on a little island in the middle of the river. It was absolutely gorgeous. But as we pounded the last tent stake into the ground on our little island, in what can only be called a poetic moment, we heard the not-so-distant rumble of thunder. And then it started raining. Well, we'd come prepared for that, even if it wasn't in the forecast. But it was probably around our third round of go fish inside of my tent when my friend Jeff, looking over my shoulder, frowns and says, Wait, why is the back wall of the tent shiny? And sure enough, my tent was leaking. Like a sieve. So now we have this choice to make. Do we go home or do we wait it out? But the decision got a lot easier when we discovered that the water had been soaking into our sleeping bags. So it's on the way back that we discover how Bog River got its name. It had stopped raining at this point, but it was July in the Adirondacks, and when the rain stops, the fog rolls in. Like, a lot of fog. We couldn't see ten feet in front of us. And in the middle of our trip back was Bog Lake. Now, Bog Lake is like this sort of donut. It's uh, passable water all around the outside, and then there's this thick, reedy muck in the middle. You can't go straight across. But there's more than 15 or 16 different tributaries around the outside, into which we could have gotten hopelessly lost. I cannot even begin to describe the sinking feeling that we got when we realized what we were up against. Now, Boy Scouts that we were, we had a map and a compass, but more importantly, we knew how to use them. And we stayed glued to those as we paddled around the outside of the bog. It took us hours of slow, careful navigation. But ultimately, we got home safe. The scripture we heard from Terry today, reading from John 14, is a very familiar one to Jesus' followers. You may have even heard this when you became a follower of Jesus. I am the way the truth, and the life, said Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, not to be crude, but this has been one of the biggest Bible-thumping passages of our generation. At best, it can be a bit trite or even easy to dismiss as one of those sort of given statements of our faith. At its worst, it can and often has become sloganized and used to bully and manipulate. But when we understand it in its context, when we rightfully handle the word of truth, as it were, it becomes like a map and compass, and it can help us find our way forward. So would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together today please you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are going to begin today in John 18. And we're going to go from there. So it reads. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. So a little background here. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, as we heard last week, 
and is arrested in the garden. He was brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the highest legal authority in Israel, and he's charged with blasphemy. Now, it amounted to a bit of a mock trial, since his accusers did a few things illegally, but nevertheless, Jesus answered their questions and is condemned as a blasphemer because he called himself the Messiah. And so we begin today as that trial ends. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them, and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, said the Jewish leaders. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way that he would die. Now, when I said Jesus had been brought before the highest legal authority in Israel, I meant the highest Jewish authority. Remember, Israel is occupied land right now, so the Romans, as the occupying force, have a vested interest in the legal proceedings for things, especially things of permanence, like public executions. So the representatives of the Sanhedrin, they bring Jesus to Pilate, who is the current Roman governor of the area, at his home near the palace of Herod, and they get him to sign an order of public execution, or at least that's their goal. The Romans did this with a practice called crucifixion, which is, in short, a very public and very excruciatingly painful way of discouraging Rome's enemies, domestic and foreign, from misbehaving. But in Deuteronomy, it's also written that anybody who dies of crucifixion is placed under a curse. So by asking for this method specifically, the Sanhedrin gets the double benefit of discouraging Jesus' followers with public pain and theologically demonstrating that he is now cursed and therefore must not be the Messiah. Essentially, they're trying to get the Romans to do their dirty politics for them. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought from you, brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders but my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus responded, you say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify about the truth. All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. (laughs) What is truth? Pilate asked. So you're going to see throughout this passage that Pilate is perpetually on the wrong side of the door. The Sanhedrin won't come inside, and he doesn't want to take Jesus outside to the mob yet, so he has to keep going back and forth between them. Furthermore, because they won't take Jesus and do what they want with him on their own, he now has to go through the process of establishing Jesus' guilt for himself, according to Roman law. He's not just going to execute someone just because. The person, Jew or not, still has to have some sort of guilt. I don't know if you know this, but you can take many of the sayings that are familiar to us in the church and debrand them, and you'll get them to their original form, things like Caesar is Lord or Caesar, son of God. 
Christianity began as a minority religion at odds with an empire that demanded their full allegiance and worship in the state religion, which was called the cult of the emperor. And so if someone else were to claim to be king or emperor or whatever, that person was now at odds with the state religion. Some groups, like the Jews, enjoyed a little bit of a unique status of exemption to this, but it was mostly because they had made so much trouble about it a hundred years prior, the Romans just didn't really think it was worth the effort to enforce. And so herein lays the strategy of the Sanhedrin. While they knew a charge of blasphemy was one that the Romans would ignore, it didn't have anything to do with them, they came up with one with which the Romans would pay attention. By calling Jesus king of the Jews, they are branding him a political insurrectionist, one that the Romans might be interested in executing as a public example. Not unlike another zealot that Pilate already had in his custody, a man named Barabbas, who was a known agitator against Roman rule. But the problem is, Pilate starts getting drawn in by his conversation with Jesus. See, he knows the insurrectionist type. He knows it well. He sees them all the time in this region. And so as soon as he starts talking with Jesus, he knows Jesus is not that. For Jesus' part, he plays it cool. When asked if he's a king, Jesus responds, yeah, but his kingdom isn't an earthly kingdom, meaning it doesn't derive its authority from this world. And then Pilate can know that because nobody was trying to rescue him. Instead, Jesus says his kingdom is one of truth. And as a ruler, he's come to testify to that truth. Now make no mistake, Jesus never denies that he's a king, nor that he rules a kingdom. But he says that his kingdom derives its authority from elsewhere. It's not from the force of a spear or a shield. It's not from the cleverness of political maneuvering. It's not from the created order. His kingdom is not from this world, even though his kingdom is for this world a world that needs to hear truth. And Pilate, convinced now that Jesus is no threat to Rome, or more to the point, is no threat to him, he hears this, and as he looks at the crowd brought by the Sanhedrin to pressure him into getting what they want, observes with both irony and cynicism, what is truth? A lot of debate has gone into this line. I think that this is meant to be a moment of recognition for us. In this moment, Pilate is pointing to the crowd outside and he's showing us that even as an outsider, he is well aware of what they are doing. He's a career politician in the Roman military. He knows from experience that even those concerned with their ritual purity, no matter what their religion, don't seem to care about the truth the way that they say they do. Because when the truth becomes an inconvenient impediment to their control, they will bend, manipulate, and even abandon the evidence of reality sitting right in front of them to get what they want. Now, a caveat seems really important right at this particular moment. We must be very careful about how we read ourselves into Scripture. Recent events in our nation could cause us to interpret one group of people as, say, the Jewish leaders or as Pilate, or another person as Jesus. But we have to recognize in ourselves that no matter what beliefs we call ours, no matter our political persuasion, 
One thing that we all have in common is a strong tendency to twist truth to our own ends. Now, that might be something that we want done, or it might simply mean we want to believe that I, not you, have the authority of correct belief backing our opinions. And the biggest thing that tends to blind us to that fact is that we feel justified in our beliefs. In this regard, it is so important that we all see ourselves in the shoes of the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. One of the very worst of our tendencies as human beings is being held up into the light in this passage. So we continue. Then he went out again to the people and told them, He is not guilty of any crime, but you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, No, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, Look, here is the man. When they saw him, the leading priests of the temple guards began shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said, which he's repeating himself again. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. More frightened than ever? Really? He's the Roman governor. Frankly, Pilate could have ended it right here. There is no reason that his words, I find him not guilty, didn't have to be the end of the whole thing. But Pilate, as we've said, is a career politician, and he makes a significant miscalculation here. Instead of just leaving it at that, as it were, he offers them this traditional custom of releasing one prisoner every year. He doesn't find Jesus guilty. In fact, he's starting to respect the guy. But to try and appease the Sanhedrin, who can obviously make a lot of trouble for him, he decides to let them choose themselves to release him and do with Jesus as they pleased. But this is where it backfires. They begin demanding the release of an actual political insurgent, Barabbas. So Pilate goes and he has Jesus flogged. He has him beaten and humiliated. He's hoping that in treating Jesus this way, he can once again appease the growing crowd of dissidents, but also appease his own conscience. And the crowd wants none of it. The mob mentality is starting to set in. And it's prompted by their leaders that they begin to cry for his crucifixion. Pilate tries to be rational again. He tells them that Jesus is clearly not guilty of any crime, but the Jewish leaders take a bold next step. They say Jesus has to die. He made himself equal with God. But they use this term that makes Pilate very anxious, son of God. If you remember from before, that's one of those phrases. That's one of Caesar's titles. He took Jesus back to the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? 
Then Jesus said, You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement, in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, Look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him. Crucify him. What? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. Ah, power. It seems that it all comes back to power. And while Jesus once again assures Pilate that he's not the one to blame here, and again Pilate finds him innocent, and again the Jewish authorities pull their ace in the hole. If you don't do what we want, we will tell on you to Caesar. See, Pilate at this point in his life was not in such a great place with Tiberius Caesar. He'd gained his title friend of Caesar because of a friend who had been recently executed for treason. Basically, he was on really shaky ground, and if there was even a whisper of him doing something that could be vaguely construed against as against the highest seat of power in Rome, anything at all, he was done for. The emperor was not as forgiving as Pilate, as it were. So in a last-ditch effort, he brings out the seat of formal judgment, which was actually a seat, and he asks the Jewish mob, why should we crucify your king? And their answer is chilling. We have no king but Caesar. Psalm 47 says, For God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Isaiah writes that my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Yahweh as king is a central part of the identity of the people of Israel. You can see this throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the hymn book of the Jewish faith, the Psalms. The Sanhedrin would have sung this at temple every week. Yet now, the leaders scream back, We have no king but Caesar. And so finally, Pilate breaks. He gives in to this very real threat to really his life. And he hands Jesus over to the Roman legion to be crucified. So, let's sum this crazy situation up. The Jewish leaders want Jesus publicly executed, so they bring him to Pilate. Pilate says, do it yourself. They say, no, we're not allowed to, which is strictly speaking true. Repeatedly, Pilate questions Jesus, discovering that he kind of likes the guy. Repeatedly, he finds Jesus innocent, or at least not guilty of being a political insurrectionist. And repeatedly, the Jewish leaders threaten Pilate's career, and ultimately his life, using Tiberius Caesar as proxy. So finally, Pilate brings Jesus out, and again says, Here is your king, and they yell, No, we have no king but Caesar. And Jesus is handed over to the Roman guard to be crucified. Again, be very careful how you read yourself and our current world into this text. John, who is the author of this gospel account, is a master of using irony to speak truth from unlikely places. Over and over again, Pilate 
a Roman, a pagan, a man who represents everything that is despised by the Jews, is given the role of declaring what is true, even in the cynical moments when he asks, what is truth? And what does he say is true? That Jesus is God. That Jesus is king. And what he's doing here is showing us by comparison the consequences of our understanding of truth. See, Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of truth, of integrity, according to Jesus. In other words, Jesus is speaking accurately of our ultimate reality. He's speaking of that which is true. He's the creator, so according to John, so he gets to do that. And he makes things with integrity. John's declared from the very beginning of chapter 1 that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Jesus constantly uses the phrase, truly I tell you. And even in this passage, Pilate, a Gentile who knows nothing of the Hebrew scriptures, is the one who is both interested in finding the truth and is the one who speaks truth. Yet the Jewish authorities, the ones who are devoted to the worship of the one true God, and therefore the ones who should recognize the truth of who Jesus is, refuse to see it because it threatens their power. Throughout the narrative, Pilate regularly tells the Jewish authorities, here is your king. Here is the king of the Jews. And maybe most poignantly in in 19.5, here is the man which is actually more accurately translated, here is I am. Here is the true image of God. Here is the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate for the sheep and the good shepherd. Here is the resurrection and the life. Here is the true vine. Here is the embodiment of grace and truth and of life that we've been hearing about for the entirety of the book of John. Here is the one that has said all of these things to you that you did not believe. Pilate may not even himself know what he's saying, but he calls Jesus literally, I am, which is the very name that God calls himself to Moses. It's the name that Jesus uses for himself throughout the book of John, and the reason for which the Jewish leaders want him executed. Now maybe you noticed, with not a little bit of irony, that the Jewish leadership refused to go inside of Pilate's home to make their demand. See, Jewish law said that if a Jew were to enter the home of a non-Jew, or a Gentile, that person could now be considered ritually unclean. And ritual purification was pretty intense. It took about a week and a whole bunch of other things. But the Passover, which is a celebration that requires ritual purity of these priests, was only in a day or two. In other words, they don't want to get their hands dirty before eating dinner because they don't have time for a bath. Jesus has spent or John, has spent the vast majority of his gospel helping his readers to see that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Word made flesh. And yet, the Jewish leaders are now trying to avoid being made impure in the sight of God, in the midst of trying to have God executed. It is painfully ironic. See, how we handle the truth matters. For a long time now, in Christian circles, the question has been all about something called absolute truth. Mostly, is there one? We want to speak to a world that thinks truth is person-dependent, that it's determined individually by preference and experience. And while it's an important question, it's also been used to include or exclude from the church, to establish power over other ideologies, over other people, 
over institutions, even over governments. Rather than a path to life, it's become a path of making ourselves feel secure in an ever-changing world full of uncertainty. Maybe the bigger question we should be asking ourselves is how do we and how should we handle truth? Because it matters. Like a lot. You've heard that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. A better translation reads, Jesus said, I am the way that leads to the truth, and that truth leads to life. See, if we are honestly pursuing that which is true, we will always find Jesus. Truth is a found embodied in a person. It's found embodied in the person of Jesus, and that truth will lead to life. In fact, John says that's why he wrote this gospel in the first place. Towards the end of the gospel in chapter 20, John wrote that these words are written that you may believe the truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. If we handle truth well, it leads to life. If we don't handle truth well, well, as we've seen with the Jewish leaders today, a poor handling of truth leads to death. And it's not just a physical death or a spiritual death for ourselves as individuals, although that can be part of it. The book of John actually uses two different words for the word life. In some cases, the word is sukin, which is a, a reference to more of like our flawed mortality. So, greater love has no man than this, to lay down his life, to lay down his sukin for his friends. Which is a very different use of the word than the other one, zoe which is usually translated something like life abundant or eternal life. It implies an ongoing nature to it, a vibrancy to it. Jesus says, I have come to give you life, to give you Zoe, and to give it abundantly. Jesus' actual purpose was to revive the cosmos that had broken down. See, how we handle our understanding of reality affects more than just our individual selves. Just because we might want something to be true does not make it so. Sure, we all have a perspective on truth from our lived experiences, from the way we do things, the things that we've seen and said, but that doesn't change that there's a reality that we live in. There's no such thing as my truth or your truth, even though how we understand that reality that we live in can change how we interact with it. Which also means that it affects how we behave towards others. It affects the systems that we create to govern ourselves. It affects the systems that we create to shape the world around us. It even affects the natural world that we live in. How we handle truth matters. Jesus said, I am the way to truth, which leads to life. When Jesus spoke truth, a woman was restored to her community. When Jesus spoke truth, a tax collector chose to repay those from whom he'd stolen four times what he'd taken. When Jesus spoke truth, a blind man not only received his sight again, but his family and community. When Jesus spoke truth, Lazarus rose from death itself. See, abundant life always bubbles up out of following the way of Jesus. Now let's be honest with ourselves. This whole debate about truth is hard. 
Like right now, in our culture, in our time, in this present moment, this is a present and dangerous reality for us. This word truth dominates our conversations, our media, our political landscape, even our closest relationships sometimes. Politics, COVID, vaccinations, sexuality, race, economics, climate change. It can feel like as we wrestle with what is or is not true, with reality and our perception of it, that we can lose friends and family in the process, that the questioning of the status quo whatever that is in our preferred relational circles, creates more uncertainty, that it can pit us against one another and against the traditions and institutions that we're currently the most comfortable, no matter how old or how new they are. We like to feel safe. And asking these kinds of destabilizing questions does not tend to make us feel safe. But there is a way through this. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Be imitators of Christ. That's what this is all about. See, I love the way that C.S. Lewis writes of Jesus in his novel, Prince Caspian. He is not safe, but he is good. Jesus is our clear way forward. He's certainly not safe, but he is good. Jesus is the way that leads to truth, that leads to life. This is why we do all of this together. This is why we need to offer one another grace and mercy on this journey together. God is for us, church. His deepest desire for us is a relationship with him that will lead to a vibrant, abundant, percolating to overflowing life with him.